0: Well, I, um, I called an audible on uh, the sermon series in 1 Corinthians. I've never done this before. Um, but it didn't seem fitting, time uh, over the summer and where we're at as a congregation, to continue on in 1 Corinthians. Um, I'm glad I did the first three chapters. Um, And so the Lord, though, led me to uh, a very different focus, um, I think, which is more appropriate for our time, which is through the next um, 10 weeks or 12 weeks or so through the summer, be focusing on a series on on God. Um, Who is God? The attributes of God, especially from the Psalms. Uh, You know, we can um, easily get overcome with our own problems. Uh, talking about our issues and the things we need to change or things in the world. Um, and I think it's hard for us simply, sometimes just to talk about God and just talk about God. And that's what I want to do. I want us to talk about God for the summer. Uh, hopefully we're talking about God all the time, but really focus. And so for this ser- first sermon, our text is Psalm 99. And so hear God's word to us this morning. From Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples, and let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among your priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy is the Lord. We come before you, holy God, this this morning, seeking a word from you, a word of your greatness, of your awesomeness. Father, many of us struggle to perhaps feel the same kind of emotions evoked in us as the psalmist does when he speaks of of trembling or quaking or of exuberant praise. But may you bring us to that place this morning, Lord, as we reflect on your character of your holiness. So be with us, pour out your Spirit upon us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't want you to take offense but your God is too small your God is too small and it's a problem for you and it's a problem I have and it's a problem that our culture has we have a very low view of God to have a low view of God means that God's name God's reality God's existence evokes in us very little reverence or awe, to say nothing of fear and trembling the idea that God is a being that we should fear that we should tremble or quake before well that's the kind of God we associate with the wild-eyed street preachers that are proclaiming the judgment and the wrath of God to come that's not God that's not what God's like right When we tend to talk about God, even as Christians in our culture, we tend to think about God and talk about God in the same way we talk about human beings. God is just simply bigger and vaster and more powerful version of a human. You know the phrase sometimes people affectionately use to refer to God as the man upstairs. Now, um, those of you who are a little bit older, like my, you know, at least in your 40s. Um, Which I know is not that old. (laughs) Do you remember that song in the mid 90s by Joan Osborne, One of Us? I'm about to make your day real bad if you know this song and got it out of your head 10 years ago. Um, There's a song, Joan Osborne had a song called One of Us. And as soon as I sing the chorus, most of you are gonna hear it, right? What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Now you guys are like, stop singing. (laughs) Sorry. But it goes on, and she sings, and I won't sing it because I don't remember the tune to the actual chorus. (laughs) What would you ask... What would you ask if you had just one question? Would you call, if God had a name, what would it be? And what would you call it to his, would you call it to, would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? Yeah, 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 God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. But what if God is one of us? What if he's? Just a slob like one of us. What if he's a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Now, if you watch the music video of this, which I know some of you will, um, it actually just drives home the point. It's I think Coney Island or the Jersey Shore, and it's just a montage of scenes of various people of all shapes, sizes, and colors going up to a cart, like a wooden cutout poster of of you know. um, a picture of God the Father from the Sistine Chapel, the Creator, and so everybody kind of sticks their face in there where God the Father is, right? The idea here, I don't think, is that we're divine as much as that God is human. Now, um, this is a very popular song, um, you know, 20 years ago or so, Um, and I remember... um, a lot of people really relating to this song. They were really moved by it. And I have distinct emotions of what that song evoked in me as I heard it played on the radio ad nauseum. And I was never mad or offended by its irreverent view of God. It really was a kind of authentic, you know, in our culture's categories, expression of spirituality for a lot of people. But what it evoked for me was... Great sadness. Great sadness. Sadness that people had such a diminished view of God. Sadness that people felt spiritually empowered by having a disempowered view of God. Sadness at just how ready people were to embrace a very, very small God. And so, this is over 20 years ago plus, and I don't think much has changed in our culture in terms of how we view God. If anything, I think the trend has continued in the same direction. And what has changed is, I think, an increased willingness on our part to question and to challenge God and God's moral character, to question how God set things up, to question who He put in charge, to hold Him accountable for the way He's mismanaged the universe. The world is full of suffering and injustice and somebody must answer and if god is in charge then god needs to answer for the world that he created now when we turn to psalm 99 we find ourselves in a completely different spiritual universe with a very different vision of god and hear what the psalmist sings the lord reigns let the peoples tremble he sits enthroned upon the cherubim let the earth The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over the people. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The chorus of this song is striking. Instead of what if God were one of us, a slob like one of us, the chorus is holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. Holy is his name. There's three different repetitions of holy throughout the psalm. The psalmist wants us to know that all the things that he says about God and his reign and his justice and his rule and the way he engages the world and Israel, all of this is an expression of his character as holy. So what then does it mean for God to be holy? What is holiness in the Bible? Holiness, well, do you remember Remember the prophet Isaiah and his vision of God in Isaiah 6. What are the seraphim chanting? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is also what the living creatures in the book of Revelation are chanting when John has his vision in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who is, who was, who is to come. When you get these glimpses of God in heaven with his glory unveiled, the repeated chorus is holy, holy, holy. There is no other attribute of God in the Bible that is repeated in triplicate fashion like the words holy, holy, holy. Nowhere do you see the heavenly host singing, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty, or Justice, justice, justice. Or compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. Or omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent is the Lord God Almighty. These are all true things of God, but they are not comprehensive enough. Holiness is a comprehensive category. Holiness is not one discrete attribute of God which you can remove or isolate from others. Holiness is not simply God's moral purity. That's how we tend to define it. Holiness is integrative. It is inclusive of God's character and how he relates to creation and to creatures. Holiness points to something fundamental and essential about who God is and God's character as we come to encounter him. So, If there's one consistent and overriding meaning to the meaning of holiness in the Bible. It is this. It is is that God as God is set apart. God as God is set apart. To be holy is to be set apart. But God's set-apartness as holy isn't separatist. This is really important. It's not separatist. When God is depicted in the Bible as above and beyond, as transcendent, as set-apart, It is so that we do not confuse him with the creation, with creatures, even with, you know, magnificent creatures. God is not a creature. To say that God is set apart does not mean that God is distant or disengaged or somehow needs to keep himself separated from the creation in order not to be contaminated by it. God's holiness is not God being set apart from the world. God's holiness is God being set apart in relationship to the world. This is key. Holiness is not God being set apart from the world. It is God being set apart in a distinct way as he relates to the world. So it is not a a separatist stance, but it is God's relational stance to us. Holiness gets at the idea that God is not a creature. He he is not like a really big and powerful creature. The way he relates to us and who he is to us is incomparable to anything, to anything. God is not like us. (laughs) He is not one of us. God is utterly and completely and totally set apart transcendent above us beyond us as creatures there is no category into which god can fit no conceptualization no words for god is beyond words beyond concept beyond creatureliness he is the very source of creatureliness he has no beginning he has no end nobody created god he is self-existent he is not contained in space This is holy mystery, and that's what holiness means to teach us, that when we engage with God, we're not engaging with just another creature, a very powerful creature or subject or being that we've ever experienced before. God is holy other, holy other. So for the psalmist, holiness starts with the very name of God. God's name is holy. This is the idea behind the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To hallow God's name is to set God's name apart as holy. That's what it means to hallow. To hallow God's name is to have the right, appropriate estimation of the name, of the character. It is to have the right emotional response. To God's name, and here's what the psalmist believes it means to hollow God's name. It's the very first verse again. The Lord reigns; so let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim; let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion; he is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. We are at a distinct disadvantage in our culture to understand the spiritual and the moral significance of names. For us, names are just names, right? Just words, just labels we attach to things or people. They're largely interchangeable. We can change them around as we see fit. They don't have any binding power. But in ancient cultures, names described a person's moral character, sometimes their destiny, Names were a way of categorizing and understanding the true nature of a person, or a thing, or an object. And in the Old Testament, the name of God was not simply a title that God was given, but the name of God carried with it a sacred reality that pointed to the very conception of the divine nature. So in Jewish tradition, up even to this day, the special name of God, is never fully written out or pronounced. The word that we have, Yahweh, is is just the consonants of the special name of God in the Bible, right? So there's a lot of names used of, of God in the Bible, Elohim and Adonai and Yahweh, but Yahweh was God's covenant special name. And in Jewish tradition, scribes stopped Uh, They wouldn't write out the full name with all the vowels. We just have the consonants. And actually, we don't even know how the word was originally uh, pronounced. Because there was such a sense of reverence for the very name of God. To to say the name of God was to invoke the very presence in reality of this God. And for the Jews, his name was holy. To say his name puts you in a vulnerable and perilous position. Do you remember the name of the arch-villain in the universe of Harry Potter? Voldemort. Or, as many people in the the books refer to him, he who shall not be named. He who shall not be named. Throughout the Harry Potter uh, series, Voldemort personifies the menacing presence of evil in the world. And so I asked my daughter Tess, who is the resident um, Harry Potter scholar in our household, why why do people not don't, I mean, why do the people call Voldemort he who shall not be named? And of course, you know, it was very straightforward. Well, I mean, people are afraid. They're afraid to name Voldemort. They're afraid of him. That's why they don't use his name. And, And it's also possible if you name Voldemort, if you say his name out loud, the Death Eaters can find you, right? It makes you vulnerable. You're in danger. And you know, Voldemort in the world of the universe of Harry Potter is very dangerous. He can kill you. He does kill many. And so there's a reverence that's shown to his name. But this is also why Dumbledore defiantly calls Voldemort, Voldemort. And he tells Harry to do the same. Because you should not fear Voldemort, even though he can create great harm. See, Voldemort is an example of negative holiness, you could say, or negative transcendence. When the psalmist speaks of the awesome power and the reign of God that creates trembling and and quaking even in the creation itself, it's not because of the greatness of God's power that brings destruction or death. It is because of the overwhelming overwhelmingness of God's goodness, the overwhelmingness of God's justice and righteousness. God, the king, in his might, loves justice, says the psalmist. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness. And Jacob, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. God's holiness causes us to tremble because of its overwhelming goodness and justice. We know what it means to be struck with fear in the face of destructive evil. We have very little sense of what it would mean to be overcome with fear in the presence of perfect justice, of perfect goodness. Moses learns a little bit of this on Mount Sinai when he asks God to show him his glory And God says to Moses, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What God is saying to Moses is that, listen, my goodness is too much for you. My glory is too much for you. It would be like you flying a spaceship to the sun. You would not get 50 million miles within the center before you vanished. From the heat and from the light, you'd be burned up. And so what God does is he takes, he makes his glory to pass by Moses, but he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and then as he passes by it's It says God used his hand to shield Moses from his face. God in his holiness is so good, so glorious, so perfect, so beautiful, that being in its presence puts your life at risk. It makes you feel like you're going to die. It is an annihilating goodness, an annihilating beauty, unlike anything anything in this world. We hardly have categories to begin to understand the sheer greatness and awesomeness and magnitude of God's name and His goodness. When you read, especially in the Old Testament and also in the book of Revelation, these strange depictions of God as like, you know, with four faces or part with beasts and all these strange images, that is the Bible... um, trying to figure out ways to communicate how utterly awesome and strange and beautiful and different God is from us. There are simply no categories in which you can begin to think about who this God is. And even in the psalm, we have this little picture I just want to draw your attention to. The psalmist says that God sits enthroned upon the cherubim. This is an incredible and frightful picture of God. See, uh, if (laughs) Renaissance art tends to depict the cherubim as these cute little flying babies with wings that are around the throne of God. But this is not what a cherubim is. The cherubim is a frightful creature. It is like a lion with wings and the face of a human being. And it's a moving, hovering throne. And God is on that throne. If you were to see a cherubim, you would want to die in fear. This is God's throne. Again, there are hardly words or images that can possibly convey the awesomeness of God and his holiness. God is so far beyond us, so splendid, that his presence, if we were to really be in his presence and to see God as God, the veil was pulled back, we would be reduced to nothing. The awesomeness of God makes us feel our holiness. It is comparable to a mosquito flying into Niagara Falls. When mortals find themselves within the unveiled glory of God, the instinctual response is to fall down in fear for one's life. This is what happens to Isaiah when he's transported to the throne room of God and he sees God in his glory. He exclaims, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We see the same with Peter when he gets in the boat with Jesus after this great catch that breaks the nets. When Jesus told him where to throw it, Peter, all of a sudden, the light goes off. He's like, he trembles. Who am I in the boat with? (laughs) He's overcome with fear. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's the same for John the Evangelist. In the very beginning of the book of Revelation, John has a vision of the ascended, enthroned Jesus. And he says... Of this, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) Fear and trembling is a natural response of a human being that comes into the actual, real presence of God. Now, I've said that the holiness of God cannot be reduced to simply God's moral purity, his righteousness, but it's not less than that. Holiness is God's absolute and utter moral transcendence. His utter moral superiority and justice over against us, his creatures. And God's righteousness our justice is central to the manifestation of his holiness. And you see both stories of Isaiah and Peter when they encounter God, and they realize what, who they're in the presence of. They're both undone. They're both, um, are exposed by their lack of holiness, exposed by their sinfulness, their impurity is exposed. See, in the Bible, central to what is so traumatic about coming into the unveiled glory of God's presence is the way that it exposes us. the way that it suddenly overwhelms us with all our flaws with all of our sinful deeds and faults and evil deeds all at once in an instant and it's just crushing now if you go through life and you've never really encountered holiness a god that is holy it is possible to believe that you are a pretty good and moral person sure I might screw up from time to time, but at the end of the day, I'm not such a bad person. But when we enter into the presence of true righteousness, of true justice, of true goodness, to the very source and fount of these things, we are completely exposed. Suddenly, we have the crushing realization of just how far we have fallen short. And we are overwhelmed with our evil. I think that one of the reasons we prefer to have a very low view of God, a God who's like one of us, a God who's slab like just like us, is because it allows us to keep believing that we're not so bad off. That we're actually pretty good people. But this is a lie. We know it. It's a lie. It is impossible, brothers and sisters, to encounter the true God, the Holy One, without being confronted by the depths of our own sinfulness. But this is not where the psalmist ends. This is not where the meaning of holiness ends. And here's where things get really interesting. The psalm calls our attention to God's use of some very flawed human intermediaries, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon the name, his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. We have many stories of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel in the Bible. They were righteous men that listened to God. But they were also deeply flawed men, <laughs> sinful men. And the psalmist is clear here that God held these men accountable and avenged, avenged their wrongdoings. And nevertheless, God listened to them. God answered their prayers. God forgave them. Holiness does point us to God's perfect righteousness and justice. Holiness points to the fact that God will and does and will hold the world accountable and avenge evil. But forgiveness and mercy are also manifestations of His holiness. Forgiveness and mercy are also manifestation of God's holiness. See, we tend to think that when God extends mercy and forgiveness, that means he must suspend righteousness and justice. That holiness and forgiveness are contradictions in terms. That there's kind of some internal struggle in God between his desire to show mercy and love and his desire to be righteous and just. As if God is at war with himself. But this is not the case. See, holiness means that God is able to show mercy and forgiveness without compromising his righteousness. And this is what the psalmist means when he says, you are forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. God can forgive without compromising his justice. God can show mercy without indulging wickedness. See, we can't do that. We don't know how to do that. And we don't think God can do it either. But God is not a human. God is not one of us. See, part of the holy mystery of God is that he can forgive without compromising his justice. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his mountain for the Lord our God is holy. The paradox and the mystery of mercy and justice and love and holiness is at the very heart and center of the Christian faith. Let me uh, recall that lovely song one more time for you. What if God was one of us? What if God was one of us? See, the mystery of holiness is that even as the Holy One, the One who is not one of us, the One who is not like us, nevertheless in jesus christ this god became like one of us god the infinite one god the omnipotent the eternal the self-sufficient the almighty the omniscient the one beyond being the one exalted above the heavens this one became like one of us as the angel gabriel says to mary this one the son of the most high this one mary You will conceive in your womb. He will be your son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will become great, and he will save God's people from their sins. The holy God takes on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. He is given a common name, and he has an ordinary family, and he has a mortal body of flesh and blood that's vulnerable to suffering to death, just like us. And yet, he never ceases to be the Holy One. He never ceases to be the Exalted One. The One who spoke the universe into existence by simply the speech of his mouth. The One who governs and rules the universe, even as he lay as an infant in the manger in Bethlehem. He never stops being like a sun that is blazing. He never stops being the roaring Niagara. Even though he has a body, he never ceases to be the one that is so vast, so uncontainable, so uncircumscribed beyond a trillion galaxies. The only proper response to this holy mystery is exuberant praise Exuberant and reverent praise. Exalt the Lord our God and worship his holy mountain. Worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you became one of us. You became human in the person of Jesus and the way you did it is utterly unique and distinct and yet you remain the holy one the creator God, the one that is beyond being, the one that is beyond all of this creaturely reality that we are circumscribed by. We do pray, God, that you would lead us to a a big vision of you that puts in perspective all of our problems and all of our smallness, Lord. And may we, Lord, learn to find our freedom as your image bearers in your grandeur in your greatness as our God. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.